Uh, my name is Zach Glick. I'm a security engineer with Amazon Web Services. Uh, and on stage with me, I have cloud economist Corey Quinn. Yay. With names that he refuses to apologize for. Exactly. Who here has no idea who I am? Awesome, you have excuses for being here. Everyone else should be deeply ashamed. Wonderful. I'm a cloud economist. I generally fix interesting and sometimes nuanced AWS billing issues. I do not work for Amazon because of my personality. But what am I doing here talking about security rather than cloud economics? This will make sense at the end of the presentation. Suspend disbelief, bear with me. And who here has no idea who I am? All right, everyone's paying attention, excellent. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm a security engineer with uh, AWS Security, uh, and so I run our coordinated disclosure program. So if you ever uh, reach out to us at the AWS-security at Amazon.com alias, uh, that's my team. Uh, and we're here today to talk a little bit about uh, how to build a vulnerability disclosure program. Uh, we've got another, another co-speaker. I hit the button of death, I'm sorry. Did you try the knob? Yes, uh, it isn't really a good talk until you have a ludicrous cartoon animal with a personality disorder joining you. And that, of course, is the Duckbill Group's Corporate Communications SVP, who is incredibly profane, but we're gonna roll with it. Let's hit it. Uh, so we're, we're talking about building a vulnerability disclosure program, uh, and part of that is actually gonna be working with uh, the rest of your security controls at your company. And so there are some other associated talks that uh, you might be interested in taking a look at today. Uh, before we get going, how many, here, how many people here are working for a government agency at the moment? Controlled by CISO, so a few folks. Um, so one of the nice things about um, this talk is it's actually become a little more relevant for the government space. Um, so on the 27th of November, the Department of Homeland Security put out a uh, binding directive in comment phase uh, 20-01 that mandates that government agencies have a vulnerability disclosure program. Uh, and so comments for that will close on December 27th. Um, and so some of the content that we're going to run through today will help you build that type of a program at your organization. And this also tends to serve as a trend-setting operation for a lot of the rest of the industry as yeah. well. And so whenever you put out a product or service online, um, nothing is perfect. And so inevitably, you are going to hear this phrase come up. Um, and hopefully that when it comes up, you do have a plan to figure out what to do. One of the most popular is to figure out that it, yeah, if we ignore it, it'll go away. Some things will, like children and parents and pets. Other <laughs> things, not so much. Uh, hope is not really a great security response strategy. It doesn't work as well as you would think. The second approach is well, bizarre, at which point, oh baby, what is you doing? Your legal department is not generally the best first point of contact for security incident responses. But surprisingly, this does seem to be a common approach for some providers whom I am going to great pains not to name at this moment. <laughs> and of course, the one that we're actually going to focus on tends to leave everyone happiest out of these three options, and it's what we are about to dive into. Back to you, Zach. Thanks. Yeah, and, and so part of the, the history of disclosure, um, we're just going to run through just so people are familiar with some of the terms. Um, so if you have no program in place and no way for people to get a hold of you, um, it's entirely possible that you might run into a scenario like this, which is the full disclosure scenario. Yeah, your security response reporting location is apparently then Twitter. <laughs> and so in that scenario, both you, the vendor, and your customers are learning about an issue in your product, 
on the exact same day. And that will create some gap, some period of time where customers might not be able to take a mitigation or take any action, or you might not know what to tell them. And so you're, not gonna, you're gonna be losing some trust and some face in front of people that are trusting you to run a product. And so the industry is moving towards this concept of a coordinated disclosure, where security finders will engage with a vendor prior to a public disclosure. You'll be able to develop a mitigation that is appropriate for the vulnerability reported. And then once the mitigation is developed and deployed in place, then you work with the security finder to publicize what they've found. Um, and the part of coordinated is an important word to pick out because it does require some work on your point. Uh, one of the things we're gonna stress throughout this presentation is that uh, you're not owed a coordinated disclosure as a vendor. You have to earn the trust of the security community and the finder community and provide a really easy and transparent way for them to work with you. And so when you're building a program or you're trying to convince your leadership that this is a program you should build, or you work for the federal government and the Department of Homeland Security has said you must have one of these, uh, there are a couple of building blocks that you can work from. And there are two, uh, two ISO specs that we're gonna pull some information from and then show you how AWS Security has built our program. Uh, the first one is vulnerability disclosure. This is your externally facing, how do you want people to get a hold of you and the promises that you make. And then there's your vulnerability handling process, which is once you've been disclosed some information, how are you actually gonna work within your company to get them fixed? And so, of course, when you bring up some ISOs... People fall asleep because ISO standards sound fascinating. <laughs> they are incredibly in-depth, they're very lengthy, and they're written by people with no sense of humor of which they are aware. So it's sometimes challenging to translate that into less ivory tower terms and into something a human being might actually care about. And so I, we're gonna pull out some of, the, some of the parts of these ISO specs and then show you how we built them into a program at Amazon. We've done some of the heavy lifting for you. <laughs> and so there's been a lot of great work done in this space. Um, Katie Mazurias from Luda Security has done a lot of work where uh, the vulnerability disclosure ISO spec is available for free online. Um, and we're gonna have links at the end, of this, uh, the end of the talk and when the slides go online, you'll be able to pull them out to get that one for free. Uh, the vulnerability handling ISO is for pay. Uh, and together, they're probably about 50 or 60 pages, but we're going to summarize them a little bit for you. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing that you want to talk about, uh, pull out from the ISO specs is the terminology of the entire process. Uh, when you're talking about security, especially to uh, PR people or lawyers or C-level executives, you want to make sure that the language you're using is clinical. Yeah, you wouldn't know this from AWS service names, but apparently words have meaning. And one of the words that, that has a lot of power that comes from the ISO spec is the word finder. Um, so you might think, Corey, uh, I have something to tell you. In fact, I'm going to report an issue to you. Yes. Um, what, what might be you, why, why, why might you call me in that scenario? Uh, there are a lot of things that I might call you. Depending on my approach, I might call you the defendant. <laughs> but, but, yeah, the term reporter means a lot of different things. Like, hi, I'm calling from some garbage publication that's here to start raking muck. Uh, finder is usually the term people want to go with. And the reason behind that is it's, ac it's accurately descriptive and it doesn't assign undue import or blame. Yeah. That's critical. Yeah, coordinated disclosure, they have come to you. They are, they are trying to work with you to fix the problem. And when you're on an email thread with... PR or legal, using the word finder to describe that external party, uh, it's going to reduce some confusion. 
because I can assure you that some of those threads can end up on a weird tangent if they think a reporter or reporter is involved. Uh, so we're going to use that word finder throughout the rest of the talk to describe the external party that we're working with. Um, another thing to keep in mind is that your vulnerability disclosure process should understand the product that it's focused on. Um, so let's say you, for example, run a, a company that offers a number of web services. Ridiculous, I know, but it, it does exist. Yes. Um, the vulnerability that you're disclosed is not in the entire company. It's in a specific product or a specific version of a product. But not a team or a person. We conducted a blameless post-mortem and determined blamelessly the root cause was Zach. Uh, Doesn't work a, as well as you hope. As a security engineer, I, I'm ready. Uh, <laughs> so, the, again, you want to use this clinical language to say, we are talking about this specific product. And that allows us to take a specific remediation step. Um, and so we're going to talk about building these remediations later, but this is the thing that you're actually doing. So it's unlikely that your remediation step will be, well, I guess we're just going to delete this code repository, close our shop, and call it a day. You're going to be taking some sort of action and moving forward with it. And you're, going to most, and you're going to be telling the public about it in an advisory. So when you're working on a vulnerability disclosure, there's going to be information that's internal to the company. There's going to be information you share with the finder. And then there's going to be a product that you produce that is intended for the public. And having this word advisory lets everybody know this is what we're working on that is written words that are going to be public later. Um, again, it's going to help staff that are just getting involved in the process tangentially um, really work through the entire, the entire way. Um, the first part of a vulnerability disclosure is that you are working to make sure that issues identified in your products are disclosed to you. Um, the first step is really setting up, building this flywheel of trust with the Finder community that you are here and that you want to know about problems if they exist because knowing about them help you mitigate them. It's critical that you have this be very forthcoming and clear because there have been times where people were tried criminally for reporting things. Those days are, thankfully, fairly long past us. But you need people to come forward and talk to you because without that, you don't know you have a problem. And once you're aware of an issue within a product that you have, you can take action to correct it. This, in turn, also helps shorten the time from becoming aware of it to disclosing it. Because you don't want those to be at the same point, but you also want it to not drag on forever. And you have to consider the full timeline of disclosures. Mm -hmm. The other thing to keep in mind is that you're not owed this coordinated disclosure. So a full disclosure is potentially always out there, and you want to work with your finders to help avoid that. As I sometimes remind Amazon in other contexts, remember, I, I don't actually work for you. A finder does not work for you in almost every scenario. You can't generally compel them to do anything. So you have to play nice. I know for some in InfoSec, that's a bit of a foreign concept, but here we are. As a security engineer, I am always friendly. Truly. You're <laughs> exceptional. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that um, you, there are hopefully people using your product out there. Um, and so you want to give them information about what they need to do to use your product safely. Um, a way that customers uh, commonly learn about issues in products is through a CVE process. They might subscribe to uh, a feed and tag a number of different products that they use. We're going to talk about CVEs and when they're appropriate and when they're not appropriate a little later in the talk. It's also 
it's important to wind up setting expectations globally, and we're going to keep touching on this theme, because you want the community to coordinate disclosures with you, but you're not owed that. There's nothing stating that they can't just go public immediately. So you have to set that expectation, and to do that, you have to make it easy for them to initiate the process and know what's going to happen next. Expectations are everything. And it's not just external. You've got to communicate those expectations internally in advance of having to deal with it. When the first report comes in and you have to make it up on the fly, no one's super happy and there's going to be a lot of running around hair on fire, fire drill styles things. And you don't want that to be someone's experience with your company when security's on the line. Yeah. Um, and so we're gonna talk, we're gonna run through some of the, um, that was, uh, the internal processes. So vulnerability reporting is working with the external finder community. Vulnerability handling is processes that most likely you are paying the people that are implementing them. Um, and so in this case, it's are your staff gonna be able to respond to an issue? Do they know it's their job? Are, are they gonna be able to meet, do they know the public SLAs that you've promised to the finder community and are they able to hit them? Um, a big part of fixing a vulnerability will most likely involve some software. And so your security team needs to understand the software development lifecycle of your company. Um, if your security team isn't aware that you use a waterfall method or we're agile or we're in sprints, they're gonna be talking to developers in ways that they don't understand and you're gonna introduce some friction. Um, your security team needs to be able to work with the internal stakeholders to be able to get things fixed. Uh, and this can be as simple as, does your team understand how to get a hold of the developers? Do you have a shared central ticketing system or does each service team use their own individual JIRA instance? If they do use their own JIRA, do your security staff have credentials to access them? Um, another unique thing, and I brought an expert in this, is uh, does your external product name match the internal team name? Or the, is there a code name somewhere? The best part about <laughs> AWS service naming is that of course they have multiple names and none of them correspond to what humans think of these things as. It's just one of the many joyful parts that make working with AWS a bit of a choose your own adventure. Yeah, and your security finders are, are most likely external to your organization. They're not gonna refer to it by the internal code name. So when your staff receive a notification, they have to be able to do that translation and reach out to the proper owner. And so we're gonna try and move on from the ISO to an actual product. Right, you were looking for things a little bit less ephemeral and ivory tower. If you start with a actual all-inclusive document and try to turn that into a policy, that's called ITIL. We all know how that turned out. Let's try and be a little bit more, shall we say, experienced and less naive when we go at it this time. And so we're gonna work through these four phases of things you should be aware of when you're building a program, and then we're gonna talk a little about how we've implemented them at Amazon. Um, and so the first phase is, is receive. Um, you wanna actually figure out what, like how do you want people to actually get a hold of you? Um, and so processing the information and handling it is great, but you need to actually have a way for someone to initiate it. And so at Amazon, we have made this decision, we use an email address. Well, technically you use two, already introducing confusion. <laughs> um, that's part of the scope. And so these are our two security aliases. Um, AWS-security at Amazon.com is for all things AWS. Security at Amazon.com is for all things Amazon.com. Yes, they sell cloud services and underpants. 
And so an email address, it gives you less friction for the security finders, right? They can send an email, they can send some free form text, they can send you attachments if they want, they can send just a very long subject line. The friction is low. Uh, most people have email addresses these days, I'm told. Uh, uh, some people still share, but that's okay. We don't judge out loud. You can get one for free at your public library. Uh, and so uh, another option that some organizations have gone with is a web form. Uh, so this is an example of US CERT's web form. Um, and you can see that it, it provides a lot more control over uh, things that are mandatory. So for example, if you have two completely different code bases from an acquisition and V2 is handled out of San Francisco, but V1 of the software is in Belgium and you want to reduce the timeline, um, you can mandate, is this in V1 or V2, and then you can route it appropriately. And you need to test this form from not just a functionality perspective, from a UX perspective. Because someone filling out 18 mandatory fields and then the captures busted at the bottom, and when you get it wrong, it clears the entire thing. If people are going to type that entire thing again, it's going to be, again, via Twitter. <laughs> and so uh, if you're interested in checking out this link, we'll have some links to this form in our vulnerability disclosure page at the end of the slides. Um, Another thing to keep in mind is that the information that you're receiving from the security finder, they believe they are the only people on the planet that know it. So there is a level of confidentiality that they're expecting your team to respect. Um, and and part of, as part of building the trust, you want to respect that decision that they've made. Um, a terminology your staff might want to be familiar with is TLP. Uh, it's common in the threat intelligence space. Uh, basically, it's the traffic light protocol. So if something is shared with you under TLP red, it means do not pass it along. It is intended just for your distribution. TLP amber is slightly more, um, more public, TLP green to TLP white. The thing to keep in mind is that the finder or the person that shared the information with you, they control the expansion of the circle of trust. So if you need to bring in a product TPM or a developer, you should always ask if you're able to extend the circle of trust in a TLP scenario. Another thing to keep in mind is that if you're using email as a way to receive information, security finders might want to encrypt their transmissions to you. Um, and so that brings us to our favorite way of sending encrypted email, which is PGP. Even the creator of PGP says it's not really a successful product because no one uses it anymore, and he generally doesn't himself. It has usability issues, but remember, you need to speak in the language of your customer. When you're running a program like this, your customer, largely, one of them anyway, is the finder. And if we know one thing about security people, it's that they love being smarter than other people, and PGP plays directly into that. So providing a PGP signature, A, lets them communicate in their preferred method, which is important, two, lets them feel super smart, and three, is signal that you probably, at least on some level, might not be completely out of ideas yourself. It's, it doesn't hurt, and it absolutely is something that should be done, jokes aside. Yeah, and if you have staff that aren't familiar with sending PGP keys or sending PGP encrypted email, this is a great thing to game day. Because if you receive ciphertext inbound and your response is in plain text, that's immediately going to send a signal to the finder that you're not 100% on their same wavelength. Yes, welcome to amateur hour. Another thing to keep in mind is that your organization, you will most likely not be giving an individual's uh, public key for encryption, and therefore you are going to have a single private key that your staff need to be aware of the severity that they need to treat that material with. Um, another thing to keep in mind is when you're building a program internally, somebody needs to own it. <laughs> they need to understand 
who is going to be checking that email box? Do they make sure that, do they know the scope of the program? In the Amazon example, we have to be aware that yes, we do have two email addresses and that hopefully Amazon.com things will be reported to the security alias. But if we receive something, we don't just leave it on the floor. Our staff know that they forward that to the proper team. If it is everyone's responsibility, then it is no one's responsibility. Yeah. And there are other things to, to keep in mind is that you acknowledge that the to the finder that you've received the information. Um, this is our uh, security statement that we pub provide publicly to the security community. And like most things Amazonian, it's wordy, so let's break it down into something more manageable. When they receive a report, they commit that, they, that you will receive, in response, a non-automated reply. And you will receive that reply within 24 hours. Once that's done, every five working days, you'll receive an update on it. Now, this is not a super tight SLA, but notice a few things. One, that 24-hour time window is not business hours. That is around-the-clock hours hours. Because Amazon Timestream has not yet been released out of preview, those are hours that are consistent from place to place because the continuum still functions. Ah, naming, it's important. The challenge, though, is that this is not a tight SLA, which means you absolutely have to meet it. Because if you can't handle what is perceived to be a simple thing, such as managing your own commitments, people aren't going to trust that you're able to handle the more complicated things, like the computery parts. Um, the next part of building your program is you've received some information, but you have put an email address on the internet, so you can receive any information. Um, you want to verify that what you're receiving is something that you need to take action on. And so your initial investigation is going to give you a good start in that direction. Right. And you need to figure out who in the organization is going to figure out initially, is this an actual something a positive that we care about? Or is it a false positive where someone says, vulnerability, people can log into your website. Yes, when they have credentials, they can log into our website. Not as big of a deal. The the challenge here is being able, you need to have that to be a cross-functional team because there's certain responsibilities that you need to staff up to be able to handle. They need to understand the nature of the potential vulnerability that's been reported and then coordinate with the appropriate party. The challenge here is that I tend to think in terms of small business where I'm a five-person company, so I assume most other companies are similarly scaled. Amazon's a big company and has roughly 200 people working at AWS by my own estimation. It doesn't actually work that way. The person receiving the report does not need to be the person that is responsible for verification of it. You can split those responsibilities. But everyone involved needs to understand the confidentiality aspects of this. Because, and they need to be well-versed in handling that information to avoid leaking vulnerability details before the remediation can be completed. And of course, cross-functional communication, cross communication is a challenge for orgs at the best of times. And when you're dealing with a potential security issue, that is definitionally not the best of times. So you need to be able to understand how to communicate across different business divisions in order to take actions that are necessary to appropriately handle the vulnerability in question. Uh, and so what of this, this verification phase really comes down to is have you received a true positive or a false positive? Um, this is really the first time where you could potentially exit the process. Uh, a thing to keep in mind, though, is that there is another human on the other end of that email chain. And so they believe that they have found an issue. 
They have gone through whatever hassle they felt to report it to you, and you really owe them an explanation as to why you believe it is a false positive. And you owe them a thank you regardless. Yeah. And you want to consider the scientific method here. So part of the scientific method is being able to reproduce someone else's findings. And so the information you might have received is not necessarily you know, a step-by-step -step checklist of how to, to uh, figure out the issue that they did. But when you say, we tested this and we don't think it's a problem, that can be received rather poorly. But if what you send back is instead, thank you for your report, we tried the following 37 steps in the AWS CLI to try to replicate it. We weren't, you know, we got an HTTP 403 that this was, you know, not found. Um, you said you had gotten a 200. We're trying to figure out where in these 37 steps did we diverge? And in that case, the person might totally come back to you and say, like, look, I made a mistake, or I was in the wrong AWS account, or they might come back to you and say, no, on line 22, uh, I called this service instead of that service. No, it's, when it's very clear when I do the exact repeat, repeat steps here and I put this in and I don't typo the comma, it, oh, it worked, never mind. <laughs> it's, it happens a lot. It, people do these things in good faith and the least you can do is not laugh at them publicly. Yeah. We have an inside voice for a reason. Well, some people do, I have no filter. The other thing to keep in mind, uh, this is an Amazon specific thing, but if you do operate a product with a shared security model, your staff really needs to, under, the staff doing the triage needs to understand that, yes, this might be a true positive cross-site scripting vulnerability, but because of the shared security model, we at AWS Security can't fix it. Yeah, the shared responsibility model does dictate at that point, yeah, someone has an app that is exploitable. Yeah, they can act as a conduit for communication there, but they generally, you also generally don't want to take the approach from a platform provider. Yeah, it's, it's just one of our customers it's their problem. Good luck getting in touch with them. Because at that point, these have consequences for everyone on the entire internet. Yeah. Make sure that you identify the types of things you're likely to see and have a standard uh, communication termination exit process. Otherwise, it's, well, there's no exit process, so I think I'm legally required to continue responding every five working days until I quit or die. <laughs> Not a great plan. Not the best for staff retention. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the next phase we're going to talk about is remediate. Which so always you, benefits from a larger hammer. You verified that it's a true positive. Now let's actually do some stuff. Yes. And ownership is not just an Amazonian leadership principle as opposed to rentership, which is a different type of thing. It's important to know that whenever a, a report comes in, when you have a 24-hour human response time and want to, and have a further SLA beyond that, you absolutely need to be able to determine who the owners of a product are and how to get a hold of them. It's disturbing at times in non-security context how much of my career is spent introducing Amazonians to one another, but credit where due, on the security front, they have very clear lines of communication because they put thought into it. It's easy to think about this stuff here, sitting at a conference. When you're trying to build this on the fly because you didn't before and now you have a report, it's a lot harder to figure it out on the ground. Things seem easy on slides or at conference stages. They're not in practice at times. And further, you need to understand what the communication with those owners is going to look like. Do you message them online? Do you call them at home on their personal number? If they're not paying attention to a particular ticket queue, you're all going to have a bad day. Yeah. Um, and part of the remediation is you've got to decide what you're going to be doing. And so vulnerabilities are on a spectrum. And so the actions that you take are going to be different depending on the information that you received. It might be a software patch. It might be a change to documentation. 
It might be a change to the default behavior of a service. The important thing is to decide what action you're going to take and communicate out back to the finder what you're going to be doing. Another thing to keep in mind is that, especially in a larger company where your security team isn't going to be the one patching a production service, you need to understand the severity of the issue that's been reported to you and make sure that the internal team that you're working with understands the severity scale that you're working from. Uh, so first, uh, an example of a severity scale is the first um, CV, uh, excuse me, um, the first CVSS system. Um, this has a number of different scoring uh, methods and you can weight it for your own application specifically. Um, at Amazon, we have a severity scale of one through five, five being the least severe and one being the most severe. And that allows us to communicate with an internal team where if we say it's a security step two, that means someone's acknowledging it within 15 minutes, it's their highest priority, no one's going home until it's done, and we're working it to closure. And you have to have communicated as well internally in advance and set expectations that every issue cannot be the end of the world or the world is going to end lots of times. Your staff need to have the technical knowledge and preparation to determine at what severity they need to deal with the owners on what time frame. For every random issue that is not necessarily huge, it might go into a backlog. For things that are world-ending, you need to have a much more direct line of communication. But having a plan for this communication is important. It, enterprise itself is a skill. It's like, do you have any experience dealing with an entire product organization? Oh, you mean Supriya? No, it, it works differently from small companies <laughs> to large companies. Um, and so part of that is, is getting security value. Um, and so as, as a security team, um, we know that we are, you know, we are, a, we operate on the production code through the medium of a software developer. And so part of every software development manager SDM's job is to deliver production features. And if I'm as a security engineer coming to them with everything is the most on fire thing ever, eventually it's going to take more and more escalations to work through that as we try to build value for customers. Yeah. Eric Brandwine is an incredibly gifted engineer who does an awful lot of smart things, and occasionally very dumb things, like AMI has two syllables. It does not. It has three. He's wrong. Please continue. I'm, I'm contractually required to say that it has three. <laughs> Are wrong a lot. Um, and so uh, another phase of the process of actually doing a remediation is remembering that there is a security finder out there that hopefully does not have access to the help desk ticket that you're working out of. Um, you all may have decided on what you're going to do, but if the person who found the problem doesn't know it, uh, they might wonder what is happening. And so once you've decided on a severity and a time scale and an action, you should communicate that back to the finder to say, yes, we received this information, and what we've decided to do is change the default. And we're going to message customers that have it turned on, but we're going to turn it off by default. And they might disagree, and part of that is communication, because if you've done all this work, you've spent all these internal resources, you've changed all these production schedules, you release it, and then the security finder disagrees with the action that you've taken, that's not the best time to have that conversation. Yeah. A lot of them have their own disclosure timeline, and that doesn't necessarily leave them beholden to you. Some research companies have a strict 90-day disclosure uh, timeline, where 90 days after it is first reported to you, it's going public, so you'd better have an answer. So being able to accommodate that and understand that not everything can move at the same speed is critical. Again, sounds simple here. It won't when you're in the middle of it, I promise. Yeah, and part of that is just the expectation setting, right? Being 
Yes, you're in security, and yes, you can sometimes require some secret squirrel behavior, but when you can communicate, you, you really want to make sure that you're being clear with all the different parties involved. Um, so we've done a lot of work. We've received some information. We've decided that it's real. We've determined what we're going to do. We've told everyone that we're going to do it. We, we still have to actually do it, though. That's, yeah, that's, that's an important... Execution matters. Yes. This is why we play the games on Sunday. Otherwise, Sunday. you get executed yourself, and it doesn't go well. <laughs> and so the last phase of the vulnerability handling disclosure process is release. We're actually going to get some stuff out the door. Yeah. And something to consider when you're building one of these programs is, are you running a product or a service? And if so, what is the potential impact of a disclosure to your release schedule? And how much of that is going to be on a timeline not of your own choosing? For example, if certain classes of disclosure require actions to be taken by your customers, you can't guarantee that your customers are going to be able to swing into action. At some large ossified, generally not particularly cloudy organizations, uh, getting some, a patch pushed from disclosure to release in six weeks is superhero underpants on outside the pants speed. That's not every company. But it's enough of them that you can't necessarily predict with 100% accuracy that that's the case. Alternately, if you have a product that's out there that auto-updates or a service where you can fix things under the hood with no customer intervention, suddenly you have a much clearer path that it does it generally shortens the timeline. But either way, you know deterministically then what that timeline is going to look like. Um, and another part of the release phase is, is back to this word advisory which is we're going to actually tell some folks what we did. Um, and so you want to make sure that the content of the advisory is not full of jargon, that it's clear for a non-information security um, coherent audience what they need to do. If you are an InfoSec engineer who is hands-on working on these things, you almost certainly will not be the person who drafts the advisory, or should not be, without input from a corporate communications style function. There's a reason that people do other jobs that don't involve code for some reason, and surprise, they're actually really good at it, and it exists for a reason. Uh, if you have a security uh, advisory that goes out and it starts with, oh crap, people are going to have an opinion, and it's not going to be a good one. <laughs> Another thing to keep in mind is that there are likely other people at your company that talk to customers. Sometimes they support customers in some sort of customer support function. Um, and they might get a, help, a ticket or a call on the phone that says, hey, I saw the security advisory. Can you tell me some more information? Um, hopefully, you told them that it was coming out that day, and they have some internal mechanism for checking out the information, reading the advisory, knowing that, OK, yes, it was this page in the console that we were directing people to. Let me help you, you know, implement the um, actions in the advisory. Um, you want to make sure that the security advisory is continuing to build this trust, right? Yes, you had, you've been disclosed a vulnerability in a product that you shipped, but you, you, part of the advisory is that you took action. We engaged. This is when we heard about it. This is when we decided what we were going to do. This is what we did. So you can really continue to build up customer trust during the entire process. Yeah. And remember, the timeline after the fact is going to be part of the advisory. It's yeah. worth paying attention to. And so this is an example security bulletin that I pulled from the AWS Security Bulletins page. Um, it relates to uh, a specific series of Zen security advisories, which when they come out, generates a lot of customer interest. And so this advisory is very clear. 
It Here does it. not matter what your level of technical expertise is personally. Whoever you are, if you have a sufficient level of literacy in English, you can read that and understand what the import of this is. No one on the executive team is going to read this and immediately jump into a panic fire mode when they get something like this. So, uh, separately, technical people are going to read this and note that it is not phrased as a thing broke, not our thing, it's cool. That tells people nothing on a technical level. It, it winds up doing a masterful job of communicating to all stakeholders simultaneously. It's a short disclosure, but you know that this took a fair bit of work to craft every word and punctuation mark in that paragraph. And if we got any of the punctuation marks wrong, well, that's okay. I copied and pasted it because I am a full stack overflow <laughs> developer. Another thing to keep in mind is that where you put the advisories should be a unique place. So the AWS security bulletins page is not the security blog. No growth hackers, you cannot put it behind a paywall. It is a very specific page with an RSS feed that to date in 2019 has only had seven updates to it. Corey, how many, uh, how many RSS feeds have you received this morning? Uh, RSS alerts, because yeah. I'm already following 13 distinct RSS feeds that your company alone publishes, and I'm sure I'm missing a few of them. <laughs> but as far as how many releases have there been this week? All of them. So this security bulletins page, when it updates, customers know that they need to take action. And so they can build automation, you can consume it programmatically via RSS, feed it directly into a security operations center and know AWS has had something related to security. Um, in 2018, we only had 20 updates to this page across the entire year. And it is not a marketing platform, it is purely for when customers need to take action. Um, we talked a little bit about CVEs before. If you're sort of just tangentially involved in the security community, you may have seen it'll look like CVE dash the year dash an ID. Uh, CVEs are great for talking about a specific security vulnerability across different vendors. They're an open standard that are consumed by a number of different products. Um, the common vulnerabilities and exposures number um, they are issued by CNAs. And again, I brought a naming expert on stage uh, to engage on this. Yes, and he has to because Amazon famously does not, comp does not co uh, mention competitors ever. But they have a competitor in this case. The CNA stands for CVE Numbering Authorities. It's a nested acronym. And they always get angry when someone comes with a worse name for things than they have. And so... A security finder is going to approach you if they've found a vulnerability. They might ask for a CVE or they might have already submitted for one. And so if you're building a vulnerability handling and disclosure program, you want to be familiar with both the inclusion rules and the counting rules for the CNA process. Um, we're going to have links to the full rules at the end. They're available for free online, but we're going to pull out some highlights here. Um, the thing to be aware of with a CVE is that it should be an independent thing that can be fixed. So, for example, if there is a specific issue in a specific plugin, it should receive a specific CVE. If that plugin is used on five other websites, you would not issue a CVE for each of the five websites. It would only be for the initial thing. Um, the other thing that you want to make sure is that if it's in a shared library or code base that you make use of, uh, you are not the appropriate person to be issuing or requesting a CVE. If you make use of a Python library and there's a buffer overflow in it, or use after free vulnerability. The owner of the library should be the person that is the engaging with the CNA and the finder. Because yes, you can patch it, you can submit a code, uh, code patch upstream. But if customers are using some sort of product that says, I want any Python-related CVE, 
but you are not Python, if you're asking for the CVE, it might not trigger for them. And so CVE should be counted within the specific vulnerability or, or library that they come from. Another thing to include on the include, to think about on the inclusion side is which CNA you should be working with. Um, so if you're in, uh, so there are some companies that are CNAs for themselves. Uh, for example, Adobe is a CNA, they issue CVEs for their products. There are also industry area specific CNAs. So if you work in the industrial control space, there's an industrial control space specific CNA, um, but they, all, they are also in a hierarchy. So if you're not sure, you can always talk to MITRE. Um, they sit at the root of the hierarchy. And it's good not to do this independently in a vacuum. Oh, well, people just use CVE dash and then some random names and numbers and stuff. Yeah, again, words, names, numbers, and letters all have meaning. Pay attention, Amazonians. Another thing to keep in mind is that the security finder might ask you for a link to the public disclosure. Um, this is because when they submit for a CVE, they are required to have a public statement from the vendor. And so they're not asking you for a blog post just because. They just might not be connecting the dots that, oh, I need this link, so give me the link. And if your staff aren't aware that that's going to be a question that comes up, um, it might throw off some of those expectations. And while, oh crap, does count as a public statement, it is probably not the one you wish to issue corporately. Um, from the Amazon side, we're also aware one of the inclusion rules that a CVE should only be issued for software that a customer can update themselves. So for instance, you won't see a CVE in an AWS service because we do the fixing ourselves. There's nothing for you to do. Whereas for things like Amazon FreeRTOS, where customers download the Amazon FreeRTOS kernel and use it, they would need to take some sort of action and update it themselves. So if you operate a web service that customers can't update on their own, uh, you should not be requesting CVEs and CVEs shouldn't be issued because customers are gonna receive a notification and there's nothing that they can do. Um, and it causes some confusion there. Another thing to keep in mind is that CVE should only be issued for GA or production code. So if your company does public betas or works with the community on GitHub. Or leaves the term beta on a product for the better part of a decade. Uh, the, a CVE that is issued for it would be inappropriate because if I'm looking for subscribe to Python CVEs and I see some weird beta channel has received a CVE, there's no action for me to take because I shouldn't be running that stuff in production. Um, this wouldn't be an Amazon talk without a slide about measures and metrics. It also wouldn't be an Amazon talk if someone failed, hadn't failed to label both axes. Um, when you're building a security program, you're going to want to be able to measure it. Because it does, we've been talking a lot about this coordinated disclosure and that how we're not owed it. That means that are, there are going to be humans that work for you that need to be running the program. And so being able to justify to your leadership how you're handling the, pro, the program um, and the resources that you're spending are being used um, in a valid manner is important. Yeah. Every week I send the last week in AWS newsletter to 16,000 people. If you hit reply to that newsletter, true story, it goes to my inbox. I get a lot of email. They get more, and they have to, because whatever email reporting mechanism you use, you have to also intentionally weaken the spam filter protection, because you absolutely cannot have that thing bouncing, or worse, eating messages to it. Mm -hmm. It has to go through, it has to work, and if that means that you have to, because you're posting this publicly, you're going to get a crap ton of spam to it, you have to take the burden on your side to categorize that out and make sure you don't miss something, or everything ends in tears before bedtime. 
Yeah, and one of our public SLAs is that we will reply to you with a human within 24 hours. And the mechanism that we have in place is if an email has sat for 23 hours, that's the orange line, a live human is going to get paged. Somewhere on the face of the planet, regardless of the day, somebody's going to get paged to say, we are close to breaking our promise to the security community. Yes, I choose to believe, since the access is not labeled, that this is a random 30-second sampling. Um, if there is a violation of your publicly stated promise, in this case, there, we didn't reply to a customer only within 25 hours, um, we, we want to root cause on that, right? We own the vulnerability disclosure program. What happened here? Was it our finest Perl script that ran into some issues? Did we have some people Pearl on vacation? <laughs> so being able to measure and track and hold yourself accountable is going to keep you accountable to the community and keep building that flywheel of trust with the security finders. Other things to keep in mind that you might want to measure are how long does it take you to go from receipt to verification of a true positive? That might indicate that your staff who are doing the triaging aren't familiar enough with your public products, and so it takes them a long time to scale up and verify what the customers are doing. Or there might be communications issues with the software developers that you're working on, or that you're having issues setting the severity of vulnerabilities reported appropriately. Another thing to keep in mind, especially if you don't have auto-update functionality in your product, is how long does it take you to go from releasing to 50% of your customers being on the patched version or 75% on the patched version? Do you even have the ability to, um, to gather that telemetry? Those are actually product design decisions that you as the security team can bring back to the product owners to say, you know, it takes us 60 days to get a customer fleet 50% patched. In the next version, we might want to consider some sort of auto-update functionality. And you can come with those numbers to help you make your job easier and improve it, uh, improve the experience for the customers as well. Um, so I brought Corey on stage today to talk about an issue that he reported into us. Yes, until now I've been standing here just adding value when he says smart things, just like that terrible boss we've all had at least once. Why am I here? Well, a while back, earlier this year, I reported in a security vulnerability and went through the process itself. And I am here to tell that story because people at Amazon who put people on stages occasionally make terrible decisions as I am living proof of. And so Amazon SageMaker, for people who aren't, aren't aware, it got a lot of updates yesterday in Andy's keynote, um, but it helps you build out machine learning. We have too many sages. Turn some of those SageMakers <laughs> off. It's a veritable sage factory. <laughs> and uh, it helps you build and train machine learning models. Um, and the issue that Corey reported into us was in the Amazon SageMaker full access policy. Um, and so that is a managed IAM policy for people that aren't familiar. Managed IAM policies are owned by Amazon but customers can attach them to any IAM principle in their account. They're usually related to a job function or a specific product, uh, usually full access or read-only to help you get started uh, with a more limited IAM policy. The other thing to keep in mind is that they're automatically updated. So when it goes from version 1 to 1.1, all customers are automatically updated. Yeah, Amazon can't update those policies. Well, customers can't update those policies directly. We have an email address for that. Yes. <laughs> Let's continue with the story. So we'll take you through the entire process. Yeah. And so these are the four phases that we've built our security program at Amazon. And the first one is receive. Yeah. To be clear, this was not when they built this program. It was pre-existing. Yeah. I was not the first guinea pig going through. <laughs> wow, no one has ever reported a security issue in abruptly 15 <laughs> years. Yeah. 
Turns out no one ever found that web page before. Now, it, so I was, uh, it was an evening and I was on my third drink and I was having a conversation online with two people, uh, Brendan, uh, Brendan Sherman over at Twilio and I was also talking with Scott Piper over at Summit Route. Both fantastic people and well worth your attention. When they speak, I generally am quiet and listening. And their response, and they said, does this look weird to you? And I started looking at it. And it turned out that it, I thought it did, so I sent an email into an email address with some random schmoo on the other side. I don't know who that poor sucker must have been, but you know, someone had to deal with it. And I wound up getting an email back, which was wonderful. Yeah, and so we got a hold of Corey's email. It was handled by our, our team out in Sydney. Thanks, guys. Um, and it's a fair question initially when someone at Amazon sees an email from me of you have to take an additional step in the process. Is it real or is he messing with us again? <laughs> it's a fair question. And so once we had received it, we had uh, met our SLA of responding back to the finder within 24 hours. It was on to the verification step. Yes, and I had a wonderful email back within the 24-hour limit. Dearest Corey, thank you for emailing us. Your email and Bamboo for Pandas are both very important to AW. No, it was an actual human being, as promised. And so um, this was the, the line in question from the... Yes, again, I was having three drinks uh, when I was looking at this, and suddenly my third drink turned into a Kinesis fire hose directly onto the screen. And rather than make people read and figure out what it is, let's highlight what's going on here. Specifically, there are two clauses in here that allow for the IAM principle to get the value of any secret that has a SageMaker tag, which is fine, but it allows that same user to list all the secrets and apply arbitrary tags to those secrets. This is a bit of a challenge there. Uh, if you're interested in learning a bit more about how attribute-based permissions work, ABAC, uh, look at Bridget Johnson's SEC 316. She is a marvel and has the good sense not to be on stage with me, but other people make worse choices. She is phenomenal, worth paying attention to as well. And so we, uh, we received Corey's message. We verified it that there was this potential privilege escalation of being able to access any, any secrets manager secret. And so we decided that we should probably do something. Well, it says secrets on the front. Maybe that shouldn't be public. <laughs> Seemed like a concern. And so the remediation that we decided to take uh, was that we remove the ability to tag an arbitrary secret. And so we still allow the, someone with the SageMaker full access policy to list the secrets, but they are only able to access the content of the secret if it's tagged with SageMaker, and they no longer have the ability uh, to add those tags themselves. So when, as part of the receive and verification process, we confirmed that this was a true positive. It was on our side of the shared responsibility model. Yes, and it wasn't a SEV1, because apparently a SEV1 at Amazon is akin to, remember that cloud we used to have? Or alternately, does anyone have a table for an event on short notice? <laughs> uh, people always misuse email addresses and yeah. ticketing systems. It's a thing, welcome to corporate life. And so we ran it as severity two issues. So even though our team in Sydney had received the initial email, they engaged back with a team in Seattle that owned the managed security policy. And part of our runbook process is um, managed security policies are tuned to availability concerns. And something to look at here as well is just 
in this relatively small snippet here, look at the different things it touches. You have IAM, you have the Security Incident Response Group, you have Secrets Manager itself, you have the Tagging Group, there's the SageMaker folks, as well as the Secrets Manager folks, and figuring out, is this actually a problem? Is there something going on here under the hood? What further investigation is needed? This is a fantastic microcosm of the tremendous level of cross-divisional communication that has to happen for something that is, in this case, trivial enough that a cloud economist can understand it. So this is not an in-depth, super deep exploit, but it is something that needed to be looked at. And it was taken seriously, and credit where due, I'm not paid to say this, they handled it excellently. And so, once we have decided what we were going to do, we had communicated back the action we were going to take. Again, it was time to actually do something. Um, and so, part of the process, we had it reported to us, excuse me, on May 8th. On May 10th, we had pushed it through the pipeline. It was out to all customers. The nice thing about a managed IAM policy is that when a new update is pushed, all customers immediately receive it. So, if you're considering that, how long does it take to remediate? Once it was in production, we knew that we had a complete remediation in place. Um, there's more informa information about managed security policies and how they're updated, uh, links at the end. One thing to point out as well is that we had a conversation after this was done on the phone. This was a Saturday for those who are too lazy to check what date that was because cloud economists don't sleep, we wait. And you want to make sure as soon as possible someone reports it that they know that there is a human on the other side because there are some very convincing automatic responses these days. You want to make sure that there could be a conversation on this. Uh, and while that was happening and they were talking to me, they were also having the SageMaker team work on determining what the actual impact of was, was this of any in the real world, not just theoretically. They were able to confirm that outside of testing, no secrets were tagged using the access from this policy. So it was not an issue that had any real world impact. It was a theoretical problem. It was not something that needed to have a bunch of uncomfortable phone calls with people. So, fun story. Yeah. And the thing as well is that with any incident response policy, what you're doing is you're trying to build up relationships with cross-functional groups as well as externally because it's going to likely not be a one-off. You're going to continue to have conversations with people. Believe it or not, security researchers, of which I am very clearly not one of them, aren't doing this because they enjoy doing volunteer work for a trillion dollar company. They're doing it because it's marketing for them, they believe in some cases that they are making the internet better, which they are, and they, they're doing this on some level for notoriety. I found a thing, and that in turn can parlay itself into other opportunities in the marketplace. It's nothing inherently wrong with this, but you have to understand the incentives involved. Yeah, and Scott, uh, who was one of the people that reported this to us, um, they continue to engage with us on, on a pretty much weekly basis through that email alias. And so part of the reason we wanted to give this talk was to reach out to the security community at large to let them know that we're here, uh, there are humans, and we, we definitely want to engage with you. Yeah, at some point, if he communicates with you weekly through the alias, you might just want to trade phone numbers or something. I'm not yeah. trying to tell you how to live your life, but give him the bat phone. Why not? And when you're building a security disclosure policy, the most important step, I cannot stress this enough, is that you have to give a talk at reInvent about your disclosure. It's, it's key. And so keep that in mind as you nice. work through things. Um, we want to thank you for your time today. There are um, some additional training and certification opportunities here um, at reInvent. Uh, if you have any questions, you can reach out to us with this contact information. Um, and please uh, complete your surveys at the end. Uh, note as well, if you've enjoyed this talk, 
please leave it a perfect score in the mobile app. If you've hated this talk, please leave it a perfect score in the mobile app, and then leave a fun comment. We get them anonymized, but we like to laugh. Thank, Thank you for coming, and above all else, if you take nothing away from this, please remember AMI has three syllables. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everybody.